Welcome to episode 133 of A Pint with Shawnee B. Thank you all for your continued support, especially those who support the show on Patreon. I've had a very good response to that and to the point where quite a lot of the expenses, running expenses for the podcast are covered by you guys, the listeners. Uh, the show doesn't exist without you, so any of you who can or were meaning to but still haven't support the show. I'm not looking for much money, just a pledge of a couple of bucks a week is great. You can go to www.patreon forward slash B. Okay, on to today's show. This is a show I've been wanting to do for quite some time since I started the project. I wanted to have a homeless person on the show to explain to us all what it is like to be homeless. And I was very lucky a few months ago for a guy by the name of Peter Mitchell to contact me on Twitter. And we caught up in London earlier this summer. Before we start the podcast, I wanted to read something that my guest wrote about a year ago. It's an article for the Huffington Post, and it's titled, How It Feels to be Homeless. For years you have passed them on the streets as much as part of your routine as your morning shower, your half-hearted scan of the world's news, fake or otherwise, and the barista who artistically crafts the four-pound cappuccino with soy milk, three drops of vanilla, and a flutter of chocolate sprinkles that has to be made just right or it throws your day off in ways that nobody understands. You see them as often as you see your own family, the disenfranchised, the rough sleepers, the homeless, camped out and befouling the sidewalks and alleyways of your daily commute, their worldly possessions such as they are spread around them, as dirty and worn out as the sleepers themselves, but as valuable to them as your 100-pound brogues are to you. Occasionally you get the urge to throw some loose change at them as a gesture of magnanimous humanity. But when push comes to shove, you would rather tip the honest, hard-working barista who ensures your day gets off to a proper start. Better to support the successful rather than throw good money after bad trying to keep the great unwashed afloat. You have conditioned yourself to look through them, allowing your eyes to pass over them without actually seeing them. A defeated acceptance of lives gone wrong. Uncomfortable reminders of what can happen when the best laid plans of mice and men go horribly awry. Thank God I'm not like them, you think, sipping your four-pound cup of liquid gold. I could never let that happen to me. Until suddenly, inexplicably it does, and you discover the life you have built was nothing more than a house of cards that crashed down around you with frightening ease. A spate of bad luck, a poor decision or two, and the ubiquitous circumstances beyond your control conspire to create a perfect storm of events that leaves you cast away on the streets feeling dazed, disjointed and damned. This is wrong, you think. I'm not like them. You don't sleep the first night nor the second. You wander aimlessly, a rucksack over your shoulder and a suitcase trundling behind you. Your remaining worldly possessions, a few shirts, socks, underwear and toiletries as valuable to you now as your hundred-pound brogues were mere days before. Your mind, unable to process the enormity of your new world order, shuts down. Time crawls to the rhythm of your slow shuffle. You pass through your surroundings with the same unseeing stare you once reserved only for your fellow rough sleepers. You are unable to say where you've been, where you're going, or what you are doing. You no longer lay claim to the right of moving from point A to point B. Your journey has no point. Your life no longer has a point. 
As realization gains an ugly foothold, denial goes into overdrive. This isn't really happening. It's a mistake, a hiccup, a very bad dream. Click your heels three times and chant, there's no place like home, and all will be right with the world again. But there are no wizards in the real world. You no longer have a home. Yet the fantasy of denial continues to entice with each stubborn wave of its magic wand until physical reality creeps in and breaks it. Your body does its best to adapt to your new circumstances, but fights a losing battle. Your sleep pattern changes, slipping away from the doctor-approved eight hours per night to a restless series of two-hour micro-naps scattered across a 24-hour cycle. You make a valiant effort to stay clean and presentable, but it too proves to be a battle you are destined to lose. You master the unique and time-consuming art of public toilet bathing, hiding in a stall in your underwear, waiting for the facilities to clear, dashing to the sinks for a splash of water and squirt of soap, then dashing back to the stall to wash one part of your body at a time. Invariably, someone catches you mid-dash and you wince at the look of sheer contempt they throw in your direction. It's a look you grow to know well. Despite your efforts, toilet bathing is a poor substitute for showering in the comfort of your own home. You grow increasingly unkempt, your clothes start to smell well-worn, and your skin begins to itch, a foreshadowing of the rashes that will soon follow. Your limbs start to ache from the burden of endlessly wandering with your life hanging off your back. Your shoulders stiffen, your legs seize up, your knees become hubs of throbbing pain, and your feet, dear God, your feet, nothing in life prepares you for the hell your feet inflict on you. Your soles grow tender from the never-ending pounding of the pavement. Calluses form, then split, leaving ridges of sharp agony that sting with every step. Blisters develop and burst. Your toes, confined to such tight quarters for such an unnatural length of time, begin to itch and burn. The skin between them softens, then splits, adding the moisture of blood and pus to the itching, burning mess. It can't get any worse, you promise yourself. The promise breaks. It gets worse. One of the wheels of your suitcase breaks and you discover just what it means to be a slave to your possessions, your only possessions, the pathetic final reminders of your once perfect life. Your overtaxed body is forced to add the weight of the suitcase to its already painful burden. You switch hands frequently, but both arms quickly succumb to the dead weight of your life dragging them down. The calluses that plague your feet spread to your palms with some devastating effects. Your world shrinks even further as you are forced to confine your activities, such as they are, to one small area because the pain of movement becomes too great to bear. The nights grow colder. Your body, weakened by lack of sleep, lack of nutrition, and lack of comfort, develops a deep, set-in-your-bones chill that even the warmth of day can't erase. You are assaulted by random bouts of shivering that attack without warning day and night. Your mind begins to flirt with the darkest of thoughts, contemplating the final option that would guarantee an end to your misery. But still, somehow, you soldier on. Then the final unthinkable horror strikes. In the wee dark hours of the morning, you are woken by the call of nature, demanding more than the usual urinary sacrifice. The luxury of a common toilet is denied you as the public conveniences are closed until the first light of day. You pray with a conviction never felt before that you can wait it out, but nature will not be denied. Discomfort turns to pain, and you realize there is only one humiliating option available. 
You scan your immediate surroundings for a discreet makeshift lavatory. Nature itself provides the solution with dark irony, and you select a clump of bushes that would provide the minimum of privacy. Zombie-like, you make your way to the place of ultimate humiliation, furtively scanning the sidewalks and roadways for any unwanted passers-by. You slowly take your position, and with a self-loathing you have never known, void your bowels like a common animal. The most basic of bodily functions, regressing you to your most bestial nature. You make your way back to the bench that serves as your bed, with the indignity of your actions fresh in your mind. Your body aches, your feet itch, burn, sting. A fresh wave of shivering strikes. You shake uncontrollably, your teeth chatter. Finally, you break. Tears explode from your eyes, mixing with the phlegm that streams through your nose. Your breath heaves in deep, wailing gasps. There are no wizards in the real world. You no longer have a home. This is wrong, you splutter. I'm not like them. I'm not that strong. Somehow you survive the night. You find yourself hovering around one of the city shelters set up to help those the city has rejected. Your preconceived notions preventing you from taking that final step. I'm going to be robbed, drugged and sodomized, you argue, while the staff holds hands in a sharing circle quoting Bible verses and singing Kumbaya, oblivious to the scum and villainy that surrounds them. I'm better off on the streets. I'm not like them. Then a fresh wave of shivering starts and you find yourself crossing the threshold, wanting nothing more than a few scant moments of warmth. The warmth you receive is not the warmth you were expecting, and you find yourself momentarily surprised. The staff treats you with a dignity and respect you had forgotten you deserved. They listen to the story of your fall with interest and empathy. You search their eyes for a hint of judgment, but search in vain. They treat you not like a category or statistic, but an actual living, breathing human being. And the biggest surprise is yet to come. Your fellow occupants admit you into their ranks without question. The very people you once dehumanized as generic homeless see the human in you. They offer a hand of acceptance that you haltingly, hypocritically take because you're still not quite prepared to grant the same in return. Until, despite yourself, you start to see the human in them. The earth mother that shines through the wreckage of drug addiction, one of the first to welcome you, makes you feel comfortable. She makes sure everyone gets their fair share when volunteers pass through bringing warm meals and clothing. The father figure that surfaces through the haze of chronic alcoholism, forbidden from contact from his own children yet willing to share his wisdom, offering support, advice and a guiding hand to those newly fallen into this strange new world. The military veteran, scarred by the mental and emotional wounds of seeing things no one should ever see in the field of battle, who takes a protective view of his new troop and is the first to come to the defence of the weak and the bullied. The refugee who came to a new country, lured by the promise of a better life, only to discover the promises were nothing more than empty flights of fancy designed to profit the unscrupulous. Yet he maintains an infectious optimism that life will get better if you keep trying. You have fallen into the only truly inclusive group of people in the history of civilization. The story of everyone's fall is unique and can't be brushed away with dehumanizing labels. There is no segregation, no discrimination, no distinction based on religion, skin color, gender, sexuality or age. 
everyone is welcome to fall, and many do. Homelessness is the great equalizer, with many entrances but few exits. Sadly, far too many in society focus on the causes of the fall, and not the solutions to bring these fallen angels back to the paradise they have lost. This is wrong. Okay, so that was written by a man by the name of Peter Mitchell, who is with me now. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. I really love that, and that's why I read it at the top of the podcast. It, it, it's a, a human take on homelessness that I haven't seen, and I think we need more human takes on homelessness. Yeah. How did you get homeless? It's a long story. It's, uh, it goes back. I originally started researching an ancestor to write a book, mm. and he uh, got a nightly dealing with issues surrounding poverty. Back so let's go there. So this guy's name is John Kirk. Yes. And he is your great-great-grandfather. And he was in Victorian London. Yep. Trying to help poor children and poor people in general. What yes. was he doing? Yeah, he helped implement a lot of what's still in use today. Not alone, obviously. He worked with a lot of people that said who's who of Victorian philanthropy. A lot of it was to help set up soup kitchens. Mm. Um, and there was, no, there was no social welfare then. I mean, no. if you were poor, tough shit. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> basically. Going back to ancient times. Yeah, yeah. And also the thought there was a prevailing attitude that it's your fault for a mm. long time. It's like poverty was considered a mental illness in itself. Yeah. Um, You're lazy. Yeah. You don't deserve it, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and I mean, I'll be careful, but the British class structure. Of course, yeah, yeah. Huge part of it. And so he helped set up what are still in use today in terms of the basic mechanics of helping them. He helped with the Fresh Air Fund, which, uh, you know, let kids... Go to the country. Yeah, out in the country. What was his background? He came from a very uh, working class background up in Kegworth. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, part of the fun of researching is there were two previous biographies written about him, mm-hmm. and they are awful evangelical propaganda. Oh, okay. The church saves the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, and if only they did. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, they still haven't. Uh, we'll, say, we'll say a few prayers for you and hope that you yeah, get some food. Yeah, yeah, and be grateful. Mm. But yeah, it was a very working class background, and the previous biography sort of, you know, highlighted, oh, he was blessed with this beautiful English countryside childhood by from God, and, mm-hmm. you know, based on that, he came to London to uh, help others, and that proved to not be the case at all. His father was an alcoholic. Um, he was a sickly kid. Uh, his father ended up uh, hanging himself. Oh, God. He came to London to escape, basically. Yeah, I don't think he was even in his 20s. Okay. Um, he was very young, and then one of his brothers followed him. Did and he make money then? <clears throat> no, no, no. He was originally going to get into teaching, and right. he almost slipped into the whole social reform thing by uh, volunteering at a Sunday school. Okay. And from the Sunday school, they recommended him to the regular school union, and they just loved him, so he had his career. So he was quite religious. My, yes, well, most people very, were back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah uh, very, even... So religious, other people who were religious would make fun of him for it. Okay. Because, I mean, he, was really, he would not like me at all. That's not, yeah. All right, all right. Well, times yeah. have moved on. But okay, yeah. so he was doing it out of a, a religious purpose. Yes. Seeing the inequality and seeing the poverty and saying, I've got to do something about that. Yes. Okay, which is very Jesus-esque. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so how did he go about it then? He's, he's, he, he, all his career he spent in this... Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. That's uh, over 50 years. Mm. I mean, there was a while he quit because when the... Uh, 
uh, Education Act was passed mm-hmm. in 1870. Everybody figured that's going to be the end of the Ragged School Union. Yeah. Um, and he himself... So what was the Ragged School Union? Just explain that. It was just it was to provide free education for okay. the poor. And then the Education Act uh, passed. And in a Did sense, there was it. no need. But they, uh, it's something that's common today. People say, you know, we to carry a state, we want to uh, end homelessness. Mm. I mean, up until 1870, they were saying we want it. You know, we're looking forward to the day where we're not needed anymore. Yeah. And then when that day came, it was like, actually, no, we like existing. <laughs> so started throwing everything at the wall that stuck. Well, then and there's this, like, this whole concept of free education is a myth as well. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm from Ireland and we have mm-hmm. alleged free education. But yeah. <laughs> you've got a couple of grand yeah, <laughs> books yeah, and yeah. school trips and food and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's not actually... Yeah. <laughs> So this guy was a, a sort of a, a, a unsung hero, probably, yes. and he lived to be a, a good old age. Yeah, seventy-two. And then at some point, someone moved to Canada, I presume, right? And you were born over there. Uh, my parents moved to Canada right. just before, okay. I was, just yes. after I was born. That's, but there so are your dad was his grandson. Uh, great grandson. Okay, great grandson. Yeah. Right. You grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah. Did you have a nice childhood? Oh yeah, right. Great. Funnily enough, it's I'm still in touch with almost all my friends from there. Right. Uh, through Facebook, and that's what's helped me through this. Yeah. Um, you're, you're a very degree. big advocate of how much technology is helping and has helped you over the over the past since you've been running. Yeah, the problems. yeah. And I'm also an advocate of how much it screwed me over when I first got yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So you were working in a lot of jobs. You were in, in a video store. You were a writer for uh, magazines in Canada. Yeah. Uh, you did. You did. You did a whole host of jobs from your CV, which I read. Which mm-hmm. so you were so you were tipping away, right? Yeah. And then what happened? Uh, then I started. Uh, researching the book um and basically it took over my life because i realized there's more here and had your father been talking about john kirk not much we're a close family but we don't talk about much so how did you find out about him always knew about him there's actually a plaque uh Ah, over on uh john street which isn't named for him right um which is just up the street from the uh Charles Dickens Museum, mm-hmm. but my grandmother, his granddaughter, had mentioned him a few times, so we sort of vaguely knew he was there, and when I started researching it, I mean, in a sense, I was very lucky, because it was when it, technology came in, mm. and I was getting access to files that I wouldn't have saved even five years before that. And yeah, because you used to have to go to a library. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> Do you have any books in John Kirk? No, yeah, don't no, think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe just go John Kirk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it worked. And I mean, it's incredible. I've got stuff from all over the world because he was London-based. Uh, but he traveled the world, had mm. no extensive experience, even in Hamilton, where I grew up, which was a surprise. Yeah. And he got very uh, involved with J.J. Kelso, who set up the uh, Children's Aid Society in Toronto, and they became uh-huh. good friends. So you had this thought to... when? How long ago was this when you said, I'm going to start writing about uh, him? I think I started researching 2011, and about okay. 2013 is when... It took over. Okay. Yeah. And this became your mission in life to catch. And also because you felt he was a bit hard done by by other biographies, right? Actually, no. no? Was, I think they should have been harder on him. Oh, harder on him. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, he was involved. It was in a hagiography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I mean, that's the sun shone out of his back okay. as far as okay. And, and the point being, I'm sure if he was a guy of integrity like you or me, I would not like to be recorded as this squeaky clean religious <laughs> person. You know, show, yeah. me the, show the warts. The warts yeah. will make people interesting. Yeah. So then let's just get into this, how it all kind of fell down for you. You came from Canada to London. 
Yes. And That's... to kind of move here to do the book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you got here and suddenly you kind of didn't exist. Is that fair to say? Yeah. It's really, it is bizarre. It's uh, because I was born in London, grew up in Canada, lived here for a couple of years at the turn of the millennium, worked, everything was fine whenever I went back to Canada. Came back to finish this. I had actually called ahead because uh, I wanted to get my national insurance number mm-hmm. and they couldn't give it to me, which was fair enough. But I said, do you mind just calling up my file to see if there's anything I should know? Mm-hmm. And she obviously didn't. She had just, uh, you know, signed no, for fine. a bit. And it's, oh yeah, here it is, no problem, you know. Yeah. Wait to uh, have fun when you get here. I got here. Um, it turned out they had no record I existed mm-hmm. on any of their system. I don't quite believe it because I was able to get my passport, no problem, and I did work here before. The reason they gave was I was born in Princess Louise Hospital, Mm -hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. So they said something obviously went wrong with that. That was bad enough. But it turns out I share the same name as someone on the sex offender registry. And it's the worst kind of sex offender. We'll leave it at that. The system, because I showed up in a travel hostel, non-existent, uh, looking for a national insurance number, the system assumed, uh, it, was. assumed it was him. Right. And that's what got the ball rolling. That's, uh, and, you know, I went down, they call it a zigzag, and we had to get that sorted out. It was in a uh, bed sit, which is a story in itself. Now, before we get into the, the decline, like, so you, but you had an English, pa- British passport? British passport. Presumably, if there was some way, which I'm sure was easy to prove to somebody that you weren't this other guy, things oh, should have been... It. Yeah, yeah so I could prove how it. How come... Yeah, that's I even have my original birth certificate, mm-hmm. and that was helpful. It's just once the system puts you, say, in the wrong database, yeah. you're stuck, It's uh, and it doesn't matter how much physical proof. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, it's all sorted. But the other thing, too, is... So you now have your number and you yeah, are registered. Yeah, I was okay. able to get that. And this is the zigzag. You had to keep going from place to place to find uh, yeah, something to get. Yeah. How, so that took a couple of years and you were basically not able to get couple work. Is that a couple yeah. of months you were not able yeah. to get work and then you ran out of money yeah. and then you're on the street. So yeah. we talk yeah. about this, you know, you talk about how many safety nets does it take for uh, people to land, you know, homeless. And I think your point on this is right, that it takes a lot less than people think. Yeah. I did a documentary a few years ago on uh, the poverty in the USA, where there's something like 100 million, a third, one in three Americans are one missed paycheck away from being homeless or on the poverty yeah. line or living in their car or something like yeah. that. And they don't, they don't think that way. No. You know, no one thinks that way. No. So you ended up coming over here full of hope and a new <laughs> chapter in your life. Yeah. And pretty soon... <laughs> You were in trouble. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you you talk beautifully about the slow descent into you know I'll you know it'll come good tomorrow or next week I'm meeting this person and that'll solve everything but it didn't happen. No, and it still hasn't. And it still hasn't already. happened, right? So tell me what happened as you were going down into this. Um, well, I wound up on the streets. It's and was in, in a sense total denial. I mean, you just like this can't be happening. Do you remember your first night? Ah. Uh, Kind of. Yeah, I was, I was just stunned. It's, it's, I just walked around with a suitcase. It's uh, and just total disbelief. It was. I mean, you really think, okay, this is a bad dream or whatever. It's like something will happen and mm. it'll be better tomorrow. Tried to get help from the charities then. I was sending out emails um, and didn't get any response. And then uh, it was another homeless person who clued in. 
um, and put me on the Salvation Army, who put me onto a charity. I'm not sure if I'll mention them or not. Um, and mention the way if they're, they're, if they're bad, bad. mention no, them. Yeah, no, the connection at St. Martin's in the Fields. Mm-hmm. And I went there and I could use their day service, but I couldn't stay in the okay. night shelter. And it's part of the problem with the system is there seems to be no clear-cut page to do yeah. or reasons for things. It's kind of a lucky get, dip if, if you get sorted out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You had to get referred. Um, they said it might be problematic. It could take two or three times. It took eight separate attempts uh, before I got the referral mm. to go in. And it was great at first. I was very grateful and everything. Um, and then that theater opportunity came up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were having readings of Down and Out in London and Paris. Mm-hmm. And they asked people to participate and to write a personal testimony. So this is the piece that I read at the top of the podcast that you then performed? Uh, no, they performed it. They performed it, it Yeah, okay. I read a chapter, okay. and then they performed it. They used it as the finale, so I could pat myself on the back there. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's amazingly um, written. It's really well done. Yeah. That's, uh, In Ireland right now, we have this mental homelessness problem, which has been going on now for, well, it's probably been going on for 20, 30 years. You have a neo, neoliberal kind of government that seems to be afraid of building social housing, seems to hate the idea of giving anyone a free house. One of the ways, and maybe you have this in your factory, and one of the reasons we have IQ, so forget about social class, but IQ, there are people who have IQs of 70 and there are people who've got IQs of 140 or 150. Right. And the average is 100. Mm-hmm. And someone with an IQ of 50, 60, 70 cannot be expected to automatically walk into work, automatically get a job, automatically progress in their career, automatically get a bank loan to buy a house, to be in a house, to raise a family. Can't be guaranteed, can do it. And there are always going to be people in society who are not as well off, not as lucky, not as privileged. I'm, com- I'm from an extremely privileged background. And there are friends I know with low IQs who, because they're from privileged backgrounds, get sorted out, even yes. though they have low IQs. In the same way that there are people from, you know, working class parts of Dublin or wherever who have very high IQs, and because they have a high IQ, they can get out of the hole, right? Yes. So, but but then there's this whole other thing, oh, they're just doing it for the free money, and yeah. it's just we're paying our taxes, and we're getting up, and we're working hard, and mm-hmm. those people are just spongers and drug addicts and drinkers and all this kind of stuff, which a lot of them are because they're stuck in the sun. Yeah, <laughs> <know>? yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Within all of that, we have a we have a problem in Ireland where every year it's going up by fifteen twenty percent to the point. And what I mean by homeless in this sense is not necessarily on the street. I mean there's something like one hundred and fifty to two hundred people living on the street of Dublin every night. Mm-hmm. Some of them get sorted out in hostels, and again they have to get up in the morning and get out. Mm-hmm. But the families who have been waiting for social housing, waiting for help, who are staying in bad hotels, who again also have to bring their kids out in the morning and hope to get back in that night. Crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Is around running around ten thousand uh, to, to eleven thousand, including five thousand children homeless, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just solvable. It has to be solvable. You know, you can. There's just no creativity going on. No. So you have, you know, what I wanted to tease at you is you have ideas based on your research with John Kirk and based on your living experience of of dealing with this, of the errors that have been made and that do not work that continue to be just enforced on people. Talk, talk to me a bit about that. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm still going through a lot of that and trying to figure out possible alternatives, I won't say solutions, mm. 
In terms of the whole housing question, yeah, that needs to be scrapped. Um, the charities, I believe, should be taken out of the equation completely. So make it government. You have to yes. solve this, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. That's, that's quite a, it's quite a radical. But I can see why you would say that, because the government kind of says, well, the charities will sort it out, and the charities will moan at the government, and between them, nothing happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and there's so much corruption. One very common scenario, and I've fallen into it myself, is uh, you get the sleazy landlords, mm -hmm. buy the place, do it up. I've been on viewings myself, and I've gone with friends, um, and some of them are absolute dives, but they're finding out what the maximum they can charge on universal credit is. Mm -hmm. Explain um, universal credit. Universal credit, obviously. that's the new benefit system. New benefit system um, in the UK, and it's yeah. failing badly. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can't go a week without seeing uh, horrible newspaper stories that people, mothers, are turning to prostitution. Mm -hmm. um, people are killing themselves. Um, and Amber Rudd's saying, no, it's not. <laughs> Nothing to do with us. Why is um, the new system causing so many problems from, as distinct from the old system when a lot of that stuff was happening as well? I think a lot of it is because it's uh, so automated now. There's right. very little human contact. This isn't a person making the decision. One of the things they like to promote is you've got this five-week wait, but they will lend you money to uh, get through it. Um, but then you start paying it back right away your next check so uh, again and they decide how much comes off they, yeah yeah so that what's missing is this kind of means testing where some a human being sits you down and chats to you about your problems and yeah. then works it out yeah it's, With, it's an algorithm making the call right now yeah computer yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. all right so would you advocate going back to the previous system is that what needs to happen uh, there i don't know the previous system right. myself but i would advocate. this one's not working yeah this right. one isn't working no. and i believe a lot of it's because of the automation a lot of it is, I mean, everybody talks about the stigma and everything with poverty and winding up homeless. Oddly enough, I found that more with the charities and with the government than I have the average person on the street. So explain that. The way I'm looking at it, I'm an upper middle class twit who wound up homeless. I'm mm. quite happy to promote myself as that. <laughs> the system flat out did not, does not know how to deal with it. So on the charity, Is that because I you're middle class or just... Because you're homeless, uh, or both. I think I think middle class, to be honest. So they go, I'm why are you homeless? Addict. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're I'm not, not a, a drug, drug addict. addict. I don't, don't have serious food. mental health yeah. issues. Mm -hmm. um, I do drink, but I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not violent. Um, and a common theme I've noticed throughout my experience is they keep trying to fit me into a category that doesn't fit. So Such as? Um, the big thing with them is mental illness. Okay. So I won't go into the whole experience there. But sure. when I was the golden boy and I wrote this, I was wonderful. After I refused to basically write wonderful puff pieces for them and other charities. Yeah. Um, and another experience related to trying to get me housed. Um, suddenly, it was like Doctor Who, that scene where it brings down the Prime Minister by mm. saying, you know, doesn't she look tired? Mm. They suddenly made, started uh, making uh, little hints about my mental health, mm. health, and that grew and grew and grew to the point I was moved to another charity, Passage House. I was accused of being a drug addict, having serious mental health issues, yeah. with violent tendencies. Mm. I mean, all crap. I mean, to what extent, accepting your case and you know, mm -hmm. appreciating your position on this, but to what extent is mental health caused by homelessness in many cases? And, 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 and uh, 
you know, as I said earlier about people turning to drink and drugs because they just fucking can't see any hope out of the situation right. they're in, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not a sort of a diagnosis to go, oh, well, you have mental health issues. Well, where were they going to send you then? To an institution or something? Is that what they wanted to do? The first, the one place they were going to send me to, and this is when the relationship really turned sour, mm. uh, was it was an assisted housing thing. I mean, my big thing throughout this whole experience was I needed to get a job. I was more concerned about that than yeah. I was about the housing. Because once I got into the charity, a friend back in Canada had lent me enough money to get through a couple of months. Right. Just needed to find work, and I could have gone back to my old bedsit place. Mm. And they were all agreeable, fine with all that. But first they told me they couldn't help me unless I signed up for uh, Job Seekers Allowance, which right. I didn't need. I right. argued, argued that a bit and had no choice. Um, but then in terms of this housing situation, it was assisted housing. They weren't honest about how bad it was. And they basically said, you know, I had to agree to slight mental health issues related to homelessness mm. and that I wasn't looking for work at all. And right. I didn't want to. Yeah. But they used the threat of sanctions and, you know, yeah. to declaring yourself voluntarily homeless. And that and is they, a human-to-human meeting. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, uh, and so they're, they're very hard. Yes, yeah. It's you. One thing I hear constantly in the charities and it disgusts me is you have to play the game. And the game is to work the benefit system. And when they were trying to talk me into taking this place, um, they said I could go on to mental health benefits, get more money, get my teeth fixed, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, really sold it as a wonderful right. thing, which I didn't need because I needed to get the job. Because long term, it affected my ability to go back to Canada. So they even went with me to ensure I played along. And then a couple of weeks later, I went for my second interview, and that's when I told this other organization, Assisted Housing, what was going on. They said it happens all the time. Yeah. It basically, by Assisted Housing, was for people with such serious problems, they can't take care of themselves. They can't, a nurse, cook, right? can't clean, yeah. uh, need constant monitoring. And they said that happens all the time, and it annoys them because it stops the people who actually need the help to yeah. get it. They, so were you uh, taking a kind of a moral, ethical stand on why you didn't play the game? Was that what you, where you were at? Uh, partly moral and ethical, and partly because of the situation with Canada, because I'm not a Canadian citizen, I'm a landed immigrant, and I only have a two-year opportunity to go back. Right. And at this point, I was a year into it, and I thought, well, I've still got a chance to get sorted and then go back because the whole time this was going on I was living on my credit card in Canada Um, so I have this huge debt there and so to find work I needed to take care of the debt and then you know go back Um, so and they knew all this but it was like no you have to find housing I kept saying no this isn't a problem once I'm working I can pay the rent kind of thing so yeah once you go through the Seven whatever stages of whatever because I'm sure you go this is only temporary and now this mm-hmm. is, I'm stuck and I'm actually just getting quite serious and then you yeah. know I'm sure I'm sure with the sort of bureaucracy that you have to deal with you know anger is something that is high on the agenda certainly would be on mine if I wasn't right. being listened yeah. to or if I was trying to say one thing and people were telling me to gain the system or whatever you were sleeping just to give paint a picture for people who were listening to this. Were you sleeping in sleeping bags in doorways? Was that what? Was I didn't even have a sleeping bag at that point. Right, it was just in my jacket. That's and I had my suitcase, which make great windbreakers. If you ever find yourself in that situation, it's one hundred and one things to do with a suitcase. And let me segue um, into this before we come back maybe to some of the solutions because we, as a you know, as a species, we are 
sadly inculcated from a very young age not to give alms or only to give alms to people who our parents feel are deserving the old classic being don't give that man or woman you know money because she'd only spend it on booze or you know and that especially applies to people on the street yeah I went home to Ireland recently to confront this homeless problem that hadn't changed in 20 years that I was away extremely angry about how we have no creativity where are the where are the special homes built out of um, container ship uh, you know some of them in, in, in London look great and are very very livable in and just nothing like that just just this blind following of the market and, and, and developers that are making money for profit and they have to hide off it doesn't work and and one of the things I started doing was I started trying to change my own approach to giving on. So I had a walk into town, which is 20 minutes. I said, anyone who crosses my path, I don't care what they look like. I don't care if they've got fucking needles hanging out of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give money to, right? Yeah. To try and retrain myself. I remember an incident that happened just recently where I was walking past a guy and I gave him a couple of bucks or you know, one euro 50 or something. And he just said to me afterwards, would you like, would you, would you, mind getting me a coffee and I remember looking back at him and I go mate I've just given you some money can't you? <laughs> and I, wa- I was kind of a bit annoyed and I kept walking and he goes no they won't serve me and I, I put the brakes on and walked back I said what <laughs> and there was a Costa coffee uh, right across the street and they wouldn't serve him right now he didn't look that dirty but it's a coffee shop right you should right. be able to go in with legal tender and buy a coffee right as long as you're not naked or you know yeah. shouting at the door so I said sure as I went over and I bought him a coffee and a cookie and I, I got on the newspaper as well I brought it back over to him and I said and I mentioned to them by the way there's a guy over there who wants a cup of coffee and you're not going to serve him I said that's really pathetic that's cost of coffee if you're listening you need to fix that hand in the newspaper he said I can't read of course, so, you know, I went yeah. off with the newspaper, but but you know this idea that we have to retrain ourselves as as people to be just fucking more empathetic and see the person behind the. I mean, you talk. T- tell me a little bit about this. When you start living uh, homeless, you started finding such wisdom around you, and also people who cared about you and, 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 and yeah. advised you and, and told you what the best thing to do. Talk, talk yeah, to me. Yeah. Actually, that's one of the really fascinating and I guess positive aspects of the whole thing was I mean, the homeless community. And the bizarre thing is it was the criminal element really took me under their wing and were great with practical advice, helping, um, helping to deal with charities, even common sense things like um, self-defense. Uh, that's something you really need to know if you're not going to be on the streets. Yeah. To, uh, Who's the violence from? Other people to homeless people or homeless on homeless or all sorts? It's both. It's it's, uh, I don't want to uh, quantify it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's I would say both because you get the lads out on a night in the town. Just kicking start, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, but I mean, within the homeless community itself, I mean, it's not like a gang situation. Yeah, but yeah, there's yeah. Fact Well, someone fact wants to rob you of something because they don't yeah. have it right, right, right. Yeah. Is that getting worse or better? I guess it's staying the same. I'm it's trying like, to ask, are people yeah. starting to get a bit more kind? I think so. It's, I mean, one of the surprises, I mean, they talk about the stereotypes of homeless. It's interesting when you mentioned that, I'm going to backtrack a bit, mm. when you mentioned Costa, I had a very similar situation at the Costa in Selston where I'm housed because everybody knows it's that house. Yeah. Um, and they refused to serve me just because I was in that house. Yeah. But on the other end of the scale, I've got Pret who have been fantastic, yeah. particularly the one next to uh, Victoria State. Okay, so everybody listening to the podcast, 
abandon Costa Coffee and go to Pret. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, that's a big way people can help yeah. if they hear stories from this. Mm. Uh, and then don't use that business. But I mean, I, I, by the way, Costa, if you're still on, I would say your people should be bringing a cup of coffee over to that guy without having to pay him to come into your shop, right? Give him a biggie and a cup of coffee. Yeah. And people at Pret do that. That's, and people yeah. at Pret, okay. Yeah. Even more reason. Well yeah, yeah. But there's this, so you have the, you have the vines, and let's just go back to your story now. So you're, you're living in out of your suitcase your suitcase presumably broke at one point and yeah. then you realise how are you going to carry your possessions you have to yeah. guard your possessions at night yeah. you're out in the streets in winter mm-hmm. you then talked about the fact that sometimes going to a hostel was worse than staying on the streets because you were threatened or oh the, that's, the housing situation is worse mm. it's, uh, and I'm not alone in this because like you say, I mean, the charities are all big on this mental health uh, thing. Mm. But they force people under threat of sanctions and being declared voluntarily homeless to accept places that aren't safe. And one of the big issues that need to be taken into account with the housing is there's obviously no, if there is regulation, it's not followed. These places should be inspected because a lot of them are complete dives, wouldn't pass health and safety regulations. But it's also like the place I am, it's used as a dumping ground for uh, people with drug and alcohol addictions. Right. And I got forced to take that. And there are times it's scary. They're great guys, but one of them is psychotic. He actually, I mean, he's a nice guy. He's still there. He's still waiting to get in rehab, keeps getting promises. It doesn't mm. happen. But he does have psychotic episodes. Uh, there was the longest time he thought there was a ghost. All the windows and everything opened so that the ghost would leave and he'd freak out. He has nights where he's screaming the worst. And this is a fluky thing. He did have a cat. Didn't see the cat for a while. It turned out the cat died. And he lived with a cat, dead cat in his room for about two weeks. And so they're forcing people to share houses, which is not good for their mental health at yeah. all. Um, not safe. I don't want to, you know, make it sound like you know I'm in mortal danger. No, I'm more no. worried that they'll blow the house up than yeah. they'll do anything to me. Kind of thing. We have the same in Ireland, where 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 mothers with small children have to share with people who have problems with alcohol or drugs instead of having some sense of well, you know, if you're a drug addict, we need to put has those guys probably together and get yeah. them nurses and methadone and all that stuff. And then the mothers, we should put them all together and help each other and yeah. help their kids. <laughs> I mean, you know, just really stupid things like that. They're just yeah. kind of, just one of the ways of deciding if a system is falling apart is looking at it at its base, because obviously that's where it's weakest, you know, if the base mm-hmm. falls, everything falls. Yeah. Is that what's happening? Because yeah, I mean our version of the NHS is a disaster in Ireland. We have half a million people in a population of five million. So ten percent of our entire population are on outpatient waiting lists right now. Wow. Uh, we have a dual system where everyone is encouraged to buy health insurance, and so if you want to go in on the public, be prepared to wait for days, weeks in it, corridors on beds. And we have the homeless crisis, which is an emergency. Which I use the word emergency now, you know. I was. I make the point about what would happen if a tsunami came in to Dublin and, you know, wiped out the east coast for all the fancy houses are, and, and you know there was a dead baby in Oshkosh washed up on the beach. You know, we would turn the place upside down trying to help our middle class get back up on their feet. That we have that exact problem, mm-hmm. and we're just saying it's an emergency and doing nothing about it. Yeah, and the same here, mm-hmm. right? And the same in America. 
Yeah, and Canada. And Canada. So it's a symptom of capitalism Mm -hmm. at its base. Yeah. That, yeah, it doesn't matter if people fall through the net. Mm -hmm. Not so much, I get the impression in Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Norway, who seem to have a social democracy working there where you do pay ridiculous tax, but you can kind of see where it's going. Okay, I'm okay living in a country where the poor get better looked after. Yeah. Go back to some of your solutions or things that, you know, when you cross-pollinate the John Kirk from the Victorian times, the things that he was doing that are still in place today that clearly aren't working. Do we have to etch a sketch it? Do we have to shake it up and start again? Or what do you think? I think so. In one sense, I mean, I'm going to sound totally revolutionary, but I think we just have to scrap the system and start again. It's clearly not working. I mean, there were problems then when it started, and scandals have since erupted because um, the home children scandal, I don't know if you're familiar with that. The, that this is the thing that's just recently happened. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's all the governments involved ended up issuing formal apologies yeah. where they thought it was a wonderful idea to take the poor children away from their families yeah. and send them to Canada, Australia, and various other places with the specific intention of spreading God's army and spreading the British Empire. And they thought it was a wonderful thing. Well, the stolen generation in Australia where they took Aboriginal kids off their... Pit. Drived it in a truck. Yeah, yeah. Gave them to white families, you know. Yeah, just, yeah. It's. Uh, I, I mean, we have to take away this blind faith in charities. It's mm. uh, definitely true. They need to be more, far more regulated. And these situations, there's so much bullying and threats and intimidation. Mm. This is why I keep saying I was more horrified and traumatized by the experience with the charities and with homelessness. These are people, by the way, who are in the charities, not yes. people who are looking for help from them. These are people no, who are in the, in charity, the charities, bullying, and but just running you down and telling you you're worthless. Yeah, that's, I mean, one of the worst. It's uh, I sort of have three really, really bad Oh, a shame them here. No. Sorry? Shame them here. You know, they yeah, know yeah. It. it was because uh, obviously the relationship got more and more fractious as it went. Mm. And when I was first moved into the Passage House, um, there was an issue again over looking for work. Mm-hmm. And I was told I couldn't take work and stay there. Mm. Um, and I said, well, I can't do that because I need to find a job. And they knew the situation I needed yeah, to take back egg. to Canada. Um, and the threats got worse. And at one point, it did uh, get really nasty, and she did actually throw me out. At that point, I was like, okay, fine. Um, a few hours later, I got an apologetic uh, phone call saying, you know, I'm sorry, come back. When I went back, um, this <laughs> it still scares me, uh, that she was there with another volunteer. And again, it was closed doors, no recording, no other witnesses. She said, I didn't throw, she didn't throw me out. Uh, I left voluntarily, and she said she had that other employee as a uh, witness to back her up. And she actually said, and nobody's going to believe you anyway because you're homeless. Um, and then after that, I started getting accusations of being a liar all the time, uh, the drug thing. Um, but that was the one moment. I mean, Did you ever do drugs when you were younger? Pot, like right. everybody okay, else. Yeah. It's, and to be honest, it didn't do anything for me. No, it just put yeah. me to sleep. So, I mean, I'm not anti-drug. So, what, what, so these people presumably get up in the morning, mm-hmm. they have a difficult job. Every day they're dealing with people who are on their, on their uppers. Mm-hmm. What would she have, what's her excuse for that treatment? Um, I'm trying to. I'm trying to just see. Yeah. Uh, see what the hell these people like. Yeah. No. Was she in the wrong job? 
Uh, I think a lot of them are in the wrong job. Yeah. It's, uh, and I think because a lot of them they get from the streets themselves. That's not the case in hers. Mm. But a lot of them, and there have been studies done, I don't have them top to mine, where it's all about control. Mm. Um, and there have been studies done saying that social work is an area that, you know, people who uh, are like that, bullies who like to control flock to. Yeah. So one of the changes that needs to be done is that there should be more regulation, whatever standards need to be raised mm. uh, to actually do that work. And judgmentalism is a thing, right? Yeah. Which is just so fucking the wrong way to deal with anything like this. You yeah. Know? If someone's in a bad way saying, well, you didn't believe in God, you know. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know it's like, yeah, it's your own fault. I mean, let's go there. The, the, um, I mean, I'm an atheist and I feel we need to stop believing in gods because there's an inbuilt excuse and procrastination that says this is God's way. Actually, what's wrong on with your life, Pete? Sorry, it's God's way. Yeah. God willed it that way. Yeah. Here's a tenor. Oh, yeah. I hope you get it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And by the it way, it would be better when you die. Yeah. And it's yeah. Like, you know, God holding our hand. Never mind, children. <laughs> this is just revelation playing out. I'll hold your hand as the tsunamis and snow and, you know, tornadoes tear you from limb to limb. But don't worry, you'll be fine in the next life. Yeah, yeah. This, and the problem is that our kids these days are being, like young children, are still being, their spongy, soft brains are still being inculcated into this mumbo-jumbo. I agree. Which has a built-in well, we do our best, but, you know, it's still God's way. Yeah. Children starving in Africa, sorry, it's God's yeah, way. No, yeah, we, that's what no, yeah. yeah. And if we stop, if we can get God off the table, yeah. we can maybe as a species start saying, okay, let's work out a way of doing this better. Right. And to what extent is religion the problem here? Um, I'd say, actually, it's not as bad as it was. It okay. was much worse during uh, John Kirk's time. I mean, I did say back home, when one of yeah. my ideas was, why don't the churches, which are emptying out thick and fast, uh, you know, have a place set aside for homeless people to come in and lie there in, in the safety of God's church, yeah. right? which Jesus would have wanted, yeah. Yeah. you know, and give them a shower and put showers outside yeah. and let them do that. Yeah. And well, well, you, the, the, the brethren that come in for 11 o'clock mass have to, you know, walk past some homeless people who thankfully have been, you know, put yeah. up by... Yeah. You know, I will actually be fair, because Connection is actually uh, an offshoot of St. Martin's Church. Right. And my issues aren't actually with the church. Believe me, I'd love to be able to say, yeah, it's all the church's fault, burn them all down. But yeah. No, well, I'm not saying, you know... It, yeah, no, it's, it, I'd love to... We have Capuchin monks in Dublin who, if they weren't there, the whole thing would have been ten times worse. I'm not actually saying, I think the church does an awful lot of good things oh, yeah, yeah. for people who are homeless and they set up soup kitchens and they set yeah. up food and they do that God's way thing. Yeah. I'm just saying that there's a sort of a built-in excuse if you're religious to say, well, I tried my best. I did my fun run yeah. around the park for the charity, yeah. and, uh, you know. Yeah. And, and I find that excuse and allows to procrastination and especially with things like climate where we will get nowhere slowly. Uh, that yeah, that is very true. That's uh, I mean that still exists. To finish your story of being re suddenly starting to realize that you are this is starting to become a bit of a long term medium to long term thing. Presumably, you go from being individual homeless to making friends homeless, yeah, to trusting people homeless and to looking after others yourself homeless. Mm -hmm. What did you learn on that journey? I learned don't judge people, actually. It's, I mean, some of the people I'm friends with, I'd say it would shock you just for uh, lack of a better word. Mm. The one guy, it's the experience with the charities, it got so bad, and this was after I was housed. 
I did end up having, a, I wasn't diagnosed, but a complete breakdown mentally and emotionally. And this, he's a hardcore criminal. He's actually in jail now. Um, But he got me through it. So he recognized a lot of the signs. And it was him, far more than the charities. What did he do that sticks with you now to the point where he maybe Um, maybe saved your life or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't use it against me. The charities do. That's this whole thing with the mental health issue. My prevailing feeling now is they created the mental health issue by yeah. the constant yeah, yeah, pushing, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, using it to discredit you even before the breakdown, saying you've got mental health issues, yeah. telling it all and sundry, you know, it's mental health issues, it's not us. Um, if everyone I mean, keeps saying you've got mental problems, it's yeah, very it hard. to you. I know. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but he, um, it's just, it's, uh, ooh. I mean, he gave me practical advice. I mean, this is actually a long-term thing. I mean, I've always had mild social anxiety. I don't mm. like crowds. This mm. was even before. Um, and in our discussions and everything, when he, we were talking and he was helping me get through it and giving me, um, you know, advice, I'm fine walking through crowd, crowds now. Right. It's, uh, so, I mean, a lot of it was practical advice. No judgment. Was there a thing that he did that made you overcome that that you can remember, or was it just... Talking to you, or I think it was talking. It was, uh, I mean, it's going to sound really, but it's, uh, you know, especially shortly afterwards, it's, uh, you know, your brain goes and you have moments. Mm. And he was fantastic during those. It's mm. really hard to describe, but mm. it's like, you know, you're out in the street and suddenly you climb up and you're like that and you're about to freak out. Imagine. And he just had a gift. It was yeah. like a sudden aura of protection around you. Yeah. Talk me through it. And he was able to identify triggers, yeah. uh, which I thought was interesting. He could, like, it got to the point he could see it coming. It's, mm. uh, okay, you're in this mood today. You know, you might have a breakdown in two days. So he was great at identifying them and pointing them out to me. Um, a couple of times I was like, no, you're wrong. You're an idiot, blah, yeah. blah, blah. <laughs> but he proved to be right. But hey, he proved to be but right. But so you're learning this now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's in prison. You can presumably... Yeah. Are you, do you keep your eye out for people who were just like you and, 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 and talk to them as well and give them some... Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's not so much now because I'm still trying to get back on my feet. Well, let's go there because um, yeah. uh, I think you're an excellent writer. You also did this uh, beautiful, which there'll be a link to at the end of the podcast, um, In His Shoes, mm-hmm. I think, which is a, that's a documentary series that you go around with a camera and it's, yeah. a, it's a virtual reality a day in the life of Peter Mitchell, which he narrates, uh, which is also very powerful. And there's no doubt that what you're trying to do, in my view, even coming on this show, I've been looking to speak with someone who was homeless for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would speak to someone in Ireland and I didn't. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a it's highlighting and destigmatizing and also not using any judgment. I mean, I don't care if I give a fiver to someone and they go and buy a bottle of vodka with it. I really yeah. don't. Because yeah. if that's what they want to do with their life, they should be allowed to do yeah. that with their life. Uh, I, I, I will be disappointed, mm-hmm. but it's not me. It's not for me to decide. They may be wanting to end their life, and I'm cool if they want to end their life. Have you? Did you ever go there? Did you ever end? Yeah, up? and that's where Brent, the guy, I was talking about. Okay, that was around that really time. Helped. It was, uh, yeah, and do you feel that that's before. something that you could drift back to, or do you think that you came so close that you decided that you won't and you you fight through? I mean, I think. Never say never, it could yeah, happen. of course. Um, but more, it was more, and again, it was from Brent, this hard, you know, hard-ass criminal type. Um, it was like, no, don't take your own life. 
get them to kill you. That's <laughs> which I mean, I get what he's saying. Well, it's, it's like a go martyr, down fighting. Be a martyr, yeah. Yeah, 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 go down fighting. Did you ever think of um, running for council or anything like that? Because you're very smart and um, you can write and you can talk. No, I haven't actually. That's I have a former employer of mine back in uh, Canada in Oakville. Uh, he's a counselor and he's someone who, even from afar, has been a big help. And he's, I worked for him for a while. An interesting thing I've noticed is a lot of the advice he gave me back then in terms of business, I found myself falling back about now in terms of homelessness and life. Um, myself, I don't think so. I don't think, I'm not a put me in the spotlight kind of person. But again, this, this, so what's happening, certainly back in Ireland, is actually people who have got disabilities and people who have mental health issues. I haven't seen anyone who's homeless, but, you know, there are people who are going, we, you know, actually, if you think about the, the nature of politics, unfortunately, we're recording this around the time Boris Johnson is about to run this country. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, but there is this, again, through technology and again, through like, you know, the idea, oh, I'd never be able to run. Like, you know what happened in America with all the Democratic mainly women who just flooded in mm-hmm. people. And we had recent elections in Ireland where the Green Party made massive gains because of the climate change thing. The same happened here. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised that the mental health thing, not just for mm-hmm. homeless people, but across the board, is very high on the agenda. We are going, if you want to look at it, optimistically destigmatizing to the point where people are allowed to talk about the fact that they're, home, that they're um, mentally not well mm-hmm. and look for help possibly or the isolationism of technology and that whole bad side of technology is driving people sort of a bit mad right yeah either way that is a hot topic everyone is touched by it yeah i'm touched by it my parents are touched by it my friends are touched by it you're touched by it i'm sure the girl working behind the desk in this hotel is touched by it yeah that's where votes come from okay and you have a story and you have an ability and you have a passion, you know, and I think it's something that you should look at after you finish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So tell Thank me where, the, where yeah. the book is at. Uh, the book, it's, uh, I'm still plugging away at it. Um, and obviously it's grown uh, because, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible irony that, you know, he did all this wonderful thing and then his great, great grandson fell victim mm. to it. So that's there. I am committed to getting the changes made and mm. that's what I'm I'm at that stage now. I have a couple of meetings this week in relation to that. And you know? um, what about the job side? Are you finding are you finding it that you're so far in now that it's hard to get work? Yes, you're very no. honest, and I presume uh, you, yes you, and no. What I'm finding, and I mean, this is something I'm taking into mind when I'm coming up with ideas. Um, everybody says don't address the homelessness thing. In your, yeah, um, but you're very. Yeah, uh, I think we have job to job application. What I'm finding is, I mean, I've reached to the point I'm so negative with the system. I'm like, screw it. I'm going to do what I want. Mm. That's getting me job interviews. It's not necessarily getting me jobs. Right. But just from my introduction letter, they're intrigued and okay. they want to do more. So even just knowing the bare facts, they you know want to call in. Um, the business community really wants to help. It's very much a community issue, mm-hmm. um, and everybody just puts the trust in the charities. What I think it should be restructured to the point where business people who do want to help, uh, even individuals should have more of a role. The charities, the social workers, are operating the machinery. Mm-hmm. They should just be a couple of cogs in the wheel. I think the uh, business people, mm. they're more results-driven. I mean, you if you screw up in business, you go under. But if 
progress, mm. learn from the mistakes, and will get us out of the circle that uh, everybody's trapped in that's not changing. Well, there's the slightly insidious side to that as well, where businesses are doing it because they feel they have to, and they just well, they, they prefer to be keeping all their moolah, you know, but they have to now start showing, showing some sort of compassion in the community. But yeah, yeah. it is important. But look, um, all I can do is wish you the very best. Thank you for coming on the show. I think you're, just to anyone listening, and who needs a writer? This guy's a fantastic <laughs> writer, and I, I hope that you, you know, I think that you're a shining light uh, and are very brave in what you're doing. And uh, thank you for being on my show, and I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Cheers.